Would you please take your Bibles out and turn in them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Today we're looking at verses 14 through 16. It's the end of chapter 3. It's the verses that are printed in the bulletin for you, and you're welcome to follow along in the bulletin. But if you have your copy of the scriptures, I'd encourage you to open that as well and to follow along in your Bibles. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14, 15, and 16. We're only looking at three verses today. It's a shorter passage, and yet this really is the heart and the soul of 1 Timothy. This little passage here, it's right in the middle of the book. This is the, the sort of the theological anchor that holds all of 1 Timothy together. This is what gives coherence to, to every other chapter of the book that are all these instructions that Paul has given to Timothy for the sake of the church. It's so much practical and concrete advice for us from the Lord as to how a church should look and how it should operate and how it should be led. All of this for us. And it comes from these three verses. So if you're able, I'd like to ask, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? This is 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you might know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is the word of the Lord. May he write its eternal truth on our hearts. Let's pray one more time. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the grace of your word which is given to us, that we might have it, that we might read it, that we might become wise unto salvation, that we might know your word, that we might find grace for every trial, that we might find sufficiency for our every need that we might be built up in the grace of Christ until we reach maturity. All together is all the saints of God on that great day when Jesus will be all in all. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. When we read the teaching in the New Testament about what the church is, we find that we're often taught in the form of pictures. Metaphors, these little parables that Paul gives us to teach us about the nature of the church. And three of the probably the most common ones when we think of the church, we think of the bride of Christ. So it is the bride of, of Christ. We also think of the body of Christ. And we also think of the church as a temple of God. And what's interesting about these pictures is, is all three of them teach us something about the nature of the church. And the way they do that is by putting the church in relation to Christ. You see, none of those pictures is complete without Christ. We have first the picture of uh, the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. Well, a bride is not a bride unless she has a groom. And it is Jesus who is the bridegroom of the church, who has uh, bought her for himself, purchased with his blood. And we know the story of the Bible moves to the wedding banquet of the Lamb at the end of Revelation. And and so it's impossible to have a bride without also having a groom. We understand them in relationship to each other. And you you don't really love a bride unless you also love the groom, and you don't really love a groom unless you also love the bride as well. In fact, you know, no husband who's worth his salt 
would allow a friend to come over to his house if he came over and he was always ripping on his wife. If he was always criticizing her and he just didn't like her and he wanted to be friends with the husband, but didn't really want anything to do with the wife. Well, no husband would put up with that, right? I hope not. He would defend her honor. He would defend her dignity and say, if you're going to be here, you have to respect the the wife as well. And so it is with Christ and the church. They come together. It's the same in the image we have of the, the body of Christ. The scripture tells us the church is the body of Christ and Christ himself is the head. Well, you can't have a body without a head and you can't have a head without a body. We have to understand Christ and the church as they are together. And if you're going to love Christ, you must love the church as well because they come together. Or again, there's the image of the the church as the temple of God. It's the building of God. And what does it say about Christ? He is the foundation or the cornerstone on which that temple is built. Well, you can't have a foundation without a building on top, and you don't have a building unless it's built on some foundation. And so we learn from these images that Christ and the church come together. They, they are uniquely tied together in their, the work that they do and the relationship that they enjoy. And so we will never really understand what the church is unless we see it in relationship to Christ. As we read these verses here at the end of chapter 3, that's what we see. Paul gives us more images and more instruction on the nature of the church, what it is, what it does, what our identity is as the people of God. And then he goes immediately in verse 16 into this great hymn of praise, maybe it's this creed that they confess, about who Christ is, what his nature is, what work has he accomplished on our behalf. And so we have the church and Christ together. You don't understand Christ or love Christ unless you also understand and love his bride the church, as he calls it here, the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. And so I want us to to read verse 15 and also verse 16, the church and also Christ, and to understand both of those from this passage. Because like I said, these verses are the heart and soul of 1 Timothy. It's the foundation of this whole book. We remember we've gotten through almost three chapters now, and it's been practical. It's been really concrete instructions, a lot of down-to-earth instructions for the church. What, what does the church do in worship? What should the church be praying for? What should the men be doing? What should the women be doing? What should an elder look like? Who's qualified to serve as a deacon in the church? It's always been very practical instruction that we got. And if you're wondering, why, why does all this instruction about the nature of the church and the structure of the church and the leadership of the church, why does he spend so much time on this? It seems like, I mean... Paul is kind of micromanaging here. It seems like he has an opinion about everything. But this is why. This is why because the church is the household of God. It's the church of the living God. When he tells us what the church is, it it gives new significance and new meaning to everything he said so far. To say, yes, all these things matter because the church matters. And the church matters because it's the church of God. This is the, the deep theological truth that guides us. It guides all of 1 Timothy, and not only 1 Timothy. This is the truth that guides us here at New Life Burbank. This is the truth that gives us direction. What do we do? That gives significance to the way that we structure the church. It matters because it's the church of the living God. This is why we do what we do. 
this last week I was filling out some sort of administrative paperwork for the church and there's certain things we need to fill out for the state of California to retain our tax-exempt status and some of the questions were just these basic questions that they ask of any organization. They said, well, what are you? What do you do? You know, they just want to know what, what sort of organization is this? And it was a good opportunity to remember, well, what are we? What do we do? Well, we're a church. And what we do is, is well summarized in our mission statement that's in the bulletin that we exist to give glory to God through our worship, our nurture, our witness, all fueled by the gospel of Christ. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's our reason for being, is that we're a church. And he says here in verse 15, what is the church? It's first, it's the household of God. It's the household of God above in his qualifications for elders and deacons. You might remember one of the qualifications was that they know how to manage their own household because if they don't know how to manage their household, how will they know how to manage God's household? That's what the church is. It's the household of God. Now, I want to remind us of this, and especially for our young people here. I want to remind us, when it says the church is God's house, we need to remember, it's not talking about the building. right? When we go home and we say, that's my house, we're usually talking about the building, the walls, the roof, the whole thing. That's our house. But when he says that the church is God's house, he's not talking about the building that we meet in. He's talking about the people who are here. That this, the congregation, the, the believers in Christ who are here are the household of God. That's where God dwells. I know that when I was a young person, there would be occasions, very rare I can assure you, but there were occasions when I had to be disciplined in church. And, and you'll just have to use your imagination to know what that's like to be disciplined in church. But my dad would take me out back into the, the foyer during church. And do you know how he would start his lecture? You do not act that way in God's house. That, that there's a special reverence that ought to be here. And that's very true what he said, but you have to remember, he's not talking just about the building as though this building were special or different from any other building or more holy. He's saying when God's people are gathered for worship, when all the believers in Christ, all the sons and daughters of God are gathered together, it's the people that Christ is pleased to dwell among that we together are his house, not the building, but the people. You see, that's what worship is. That's what worship is. Here's a great description of what worship is. When we come together as the church to worship God on Sundays, here's a great description. A service of public worship is not merely a gathering of God's children with each other, but before all else, it's a meeting of the triune God with his chosen people. That's what worship is. It's not just that we, people, believers in Christ, church members, come together. That's important, but much more, first and foremost, worship is a meeting of the triune God with his covenant people. That he is here, he is among us, his presence is here, and not merely by means of, of the divine uh, omnipresence that he is everywhere, but in a special way because he is the covenant savior of his people. That Jesus Christ is one who draws people to himself and enters into a relationship with them makes them his, and in worship, when we're gathered together, he's here in a special way. You see, that's what makes church unique. That's what makes church so special, is, is that this is not just gathering to hear some biblical teaching and to sing some songs. This is a meeting with God. 
that the triune God, the faithful covenant Savior, is in our presence, that we are here at his house. Now, I I want you to know that I find a lot of power and a lot of hope, a lot of encouragement in this verse. Because even, even for me as a pastor, when I get frustrated or when I get discouraged about the church or when I'm feeling a little bit down about it, to remember that, you know what? What is this? What is going on here? This is not merely a, a gathering of us with one another. This is the household of God. This is primarily God's doing before it is the doing of any of us. This is God who is at work among us. It is his household. Oftentimes, we, like Elisha in the Old Testament, if you remember when Elisha and his servant were out in the wilderness, they needed to have their eyes open to the spiritual reality that was all around them. If you remember the story, uh, he, Elisha prays that his servant, who's getting so frustrated and so discouraged, may have his eyes open to see the spiritual reality that all around them, surrounding them, although they were outnumbered by the enemy, they were surrounded by chariots of fire. There were angels all around them. There was a spiritual dimension that it was the true reality, but his servant was blind to seeing that, and therefore his servant was discouraged, and he was frustrated, and he was fearful. He was hopeless. That's us so often. Even to be in church so often, we forget that there is not just what our eyes see, but there is a spiritual reality. There is another dimension at work, that, that there are angels that surround us, glorifying God, we read in, in, in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 even about the great cloud of witnesses that we're surrounded by, which is an encouragement to us to, to remember the reality of who we are, of what Christ has done, of how he has been the hope and the joy of so many before us, and therefore to run with perseverance the road that is marked out before us. Our eyes so often need to be open to the spiritual reality that this is God's household. That's what the church is. When you get discouraged or frustrated by church, remember this is God's household. This is the church that Jesus himself loves. I'm very encouraged when I can remind myself that I might be frustrated, but Jesus loves his church far more than any one of us does. He loves his church far more than I do. He loves his church. He died to purchase his church. He's the one who said, I will not leave you as orphans. Though he would go away, he would send his spirit. And he is going to the right hand of the Father where he governs his church, where he shepherds his church. Gives his spirit to his church. He even now is calling men and women to join his church. He is building his church. He is sanctifying his church in order that on that great day he will present us to himself as his bride without any spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He will celebrate his glory reflected in his church. Jesus loves his church. And Paul looks at the church and he says, this is the household of God. It's the church of the living God. Just to to stop and to think what he said here, to say that we are together as a church, the church of the living God. This is not just one more civic organization that we come to the meetings of every week. It's not just one more errand on our to-do list of things to to check off on a busy weekend day. The presence of God is in this place, that he delights to hear our praises. Feeble though they may be, he delights to hear our praises. He delights 
to receive our offerings. Again, humble though they may be, just we, we might wish that there was more we could do, but he delights in what we have. He delights to be in the presence of his children. He delights to come and, and to open his word to us and to teach us just by the reading of his word, to speak his word to us, to nurture our faith, to gather us around his table in the sacraments and to nourish our faith and to feed our hearts. This is the church of the living God. And yet, don't, don't most of us have to admit that the descriptions of the beauty and the glory and the wonder of the church and the theological reality, we, we hear that and we say, yes, that's great, but, but you know, that often feels like it's just a million miles from my daily experience of what church is like. Right? We, we often feel, you know, most of the time, church feels pretty ordinary. You know, we use these grandiose words and these terms that Paul uses in the scriptures, say, this is the reality, and yet what we experience is pretty ordinary. I mean, we do roughly the same thing here every week. It's, it's pretty predictable. There's not a lot of, of pizzazz. There's not a, a lot of flash here. We know what, what we're going to do, and it's easy for us to fall into the routine. Now, this, is, this is what we do on Sundays. Like it or not, this is what we do. This is who we are. Maybe you experience it not only as ordinary, but even a little inconvenient. You know, it's, it's work to get here. Right? I mean, we meet at 1 in the afternoon. That's, that's not a great time. It's, we have other things we might rather be doing at 1 in the afternoon. We have to get the little ones ready to come to church, and that's a chore. We have to get the big ones ready for church, and that can be a chore. And we, we all have to get out the door at the same time and, and to try to make it to church. And we say, this is just more work than it feels like it's worth sometimes. It, it can be inconvenience. Maybe we could go one step further. Not, maybe it's not only ordinary to you or an inconvenience. You know, some of us would even say, we've been hurt by the church. We've been hurt despite the, the wonderful things we read here in 1 Timothy 3. would say, you know what? That's not my experience in the church. My experience is, I've been really hurt by things that have happened in the church. And, and the truth is, if you haven't been yet, well, just wait. We'll get there. You know, if you're a part of a church that's a body of believers in this world and you're committed to it, sooner or later, something's going to happen. Decisions will be made that you don't agree with. People will do things that you don't like. That's, that's just reality in the church. And so maybe your default mode of thinking when you think about church is to go into this defensive mode, to be negative about it and say, that, that's not my experience. The church for me is, is a hard and, and damaging thing. And so it's hard for you to get into things like this. But if that's true of you, and I, it's true of almost all of us, but what we need to do in that case is, well, first of all, we need to read First Timothy. We need to read 1 Timothy and all the books of the Bible and realize that's what the Bible says about church too. I mean, think of what we've already said about 1 Timothy. Paul has told Timothy to stay at Ephesus because they needed a pastor, something bad. I mean, this was a church that some of the elders had risen up and were teaching false doctrine. There were false teachers, so much so that Paul said, I had to hand them over to, be, to Satan so that they would learn not to blaspheme. That's how bad things had gotten this was a church where the men were apparently arguing more than they were praying. That the women were having contests to see who could dress the most provocatively rather than doing any of the good works of ministry that Paul tells them to do. This was a church that was a mess. He could look around all of the church here in Ephesus and say, goodness, they need a whole book written to them. Things are so bad. And yet, at the same time, there is a spiritual truth. And he can draw on this and say, despite any of the sin that's in this church, 
despite all of the problems, all of the inconveniences, and all of the hurt, this is the church that Jesus Christ went to the cross to save. This is the household of God where he delights to be with his people. And he can look at a church and say, you know what, we are not that church. That's not true about us because of our goodness. Right? We're not the household of God because we have earned it, because we've cleaned ourselves up and God looked and said, those are the people I'll dwell with because they're so great. We're the household of God by the mercy of Christ because he loved us in Christ before the foundation of the world and he set his love on us. And he sent Christ to die because of our sins, because he knew we needed to be forgiven of all these sins. And that's why we can be a part of the church. That's why we can say, this is true of us. We are the household of God. We are the church of the living God, and he dwells with us, not because of who we are, not because of what we've done, but because of Christ. Any book in the New Testament will tell us the same testimony. It's all because of Christ that we're the household of God. We so easily see the human realities. We need a passage like this to say, lift up your eyes. Pray that the Lord may open the eyes of your hearts to know the real truth about who you are. The real truth about who we are as the church. We sang this hymn a couple weeks ago. I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode, the church our blessed Redeemer saved with his own precious blood. I love the church, O God, her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye and written on thy hand. Paul teaches us here to love the church, to uh, pray for the church, to give our best cares and toils for the church, because not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is and his love for the church and what he has done for the church. So first we see the church, but as we've said, we will never understand the church without Christ. And so verse 16 now, he leads us to Christ. If verse 14 and 15... We could understand it this way. Verse 14 and 15 give the foundation for the rest of the book. It's all about the church, and here's why the church is important. Now verse 16 gives the foundation for verses 14 and 15. That's why the church is important. Now here's why the church is important, because of Christ. So we're going to zoom the lens out even more and, and, and pan out and see Christ and see that this verse right here, verse 16, this is the theological anchor that holds 1 Timothy in place. Jesus is the reason to love the church. And not just church in general, big C all over the world, but a local church. This is written to a local church, an individual, particular church. And Jesus is the reason that the men should be devoting themselves to prayer rather than arguing. That the women should be devoting themselves to good works. That we should have high standards for elders and deacons and test them and be sure they know how to manage their house and, and to not be lovers of money and to not be uh, quarrelsome but gentle. It's because of Christ. That behind everything in First Timothy is this grand picture of Jesus Christ as the head of the church, the Lord of the church, the groom of the church. And because Jesus loves the church, therefore we love the church as well. And you see, there would be nothing more dangerous for us than to be a church that's always talking about church and always talking about the details and the leadership structures and the systems and the organization, but to never talk about Jesus. 
that happens in churches sometimes, and it never ends well for them. And so Paul here in verse 16, now he, he quotes this poem, or perhaps it's a hymn or a creed of some sort that, that he uses here that's about Jesus. It has six lines and four major themes. Six lines in this creed, but there are four major themes. The first theme is, who is Jesus? And we see in the first line, he was manifested in the flesh. He was manifest in the flesh. To say that Jesus was manifest in the flesh, he was not created, he was manifest, that means he existed before them. John chapter 1 explains this so clearly to, to say, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning to say, Jesus is eternal God. He is pre-existent. He had no beginning. He has no end. He is perfect God. And so we understand by this line that he was manifest in the flesh means he is eternally God. And yet he is a God who is manifest in the flesh, who made himself known in the flesh. He was incarnate as a human being. He became a human being. He was not a human being. He was God. And then he became manifest as a human being. Out of his love for God, out of his love for the church and his care and his desire to care for the church, he humbled himself. He humbled himself by taking on human form. And so even in this first line, we see the glory of Christ, that he was prior to being a human. He was, he existed prior to his incarnation. He existed with God from all eternity, but is manifest now in the flesh. But we see who he is. We also see what he did in the second two lines. Vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels. Vindicated in the Spirit and seen by angels is referring to the work of Christ in a broad way that he died and was resurrected on the third day and ascended into heaven. And when it says he was vindicated by the Spirit, that's what vindicated means. It's a reference to the resurrection to say, here is Jesus Sinful men put him to death. They leveled a charge against him and they executed him for it. But God the Father vindicated him. God found him innocent of those charges and so he vindicated him and he raised him from the dead. That's what this means to say that he was vindicated by the Spirit is to reference his resurrection, to say that he died and was raised on the third day. Because God understood he was Jesus in his life was perfectly righteous, perfectly holy, a perfectly sinless man, the sacrifice that he offered on the cross was a perfect sacrifice. God the Father accepted the sacrifice. He found it acceptable. He found it holy. He found it uh, perfect, lacking nothing. So he accepts the sacrifice and he vindicates Jesus. So sin was atoned for, the penalty was paid, and, and that, again, I mean, this is the central truths of the faith. Who is Jesus? What has he done? Well, he's died for sins and was resurrected on the third day. He was vindicated by the Spirit, and in that he was seen by the angels. The third truth in, in, the, in the next two lines, what is Jesus doing now? Well, he's being proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. In other words, even now he is building his church. He is preached, being preached among the nations, and believed on in the world. This refers to Jesus' ongoing work today. We could say the first three lines refer to Jesus' work he did 
when he was here incarnate in the flesh among us, the last half of this creed refers to the work that he's still doing, his ongoing work, and first is building his church through the proclamation of the gospel. He is calling people to himself. He is saving them. He is building for himself a church out of every nation, tribe, tongue, language, people. He is building his church through the proclamation that is the preaching of the word of God. Which means that we here, who are we? Well, we're a part of Jesus' ongoing work. We're part of what he continues to do for his people, even now from heaven. When we proclaim the gospel, when we share the gospel, that is participating in Jesus' work today of him being proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. And then fourth, where is Jesus now? The last line tells us he's taken up in glory. He's taken up in glory, a reference to the ascension of Jesus Christ, but it's even more than that. It's even more than that. This does not merely tell us what did Jesus do at the end of his earthly life while he was ascended into heaven. It tells us where is he now. Where is he now? He is in glory. He is in heaven at the right hand of God the Father from which he rules over all things. You see, we usually get, get it wrong when we think of the ascension. We think, well, it's too bad Jesus couldn't have stayed longer, but he had to get back. And so we think now he is removed from the earth. Well, actually, in the ascension, he has ascended to his throne. That's the seat from which he has the most authority. When he takes his throne in heaven, now he's in the position of ultimate influence over the world. Now he reigns and rules from heaven over his church. And we remember the first thing he did, his first act as ruling king after the resurrection, was to give us his spirit. Say, I will not leave you alone as orphans. I will give you my spirit to be among you. So that's where he is now. He's ascended into glory. That means he is reigning in heaven. And you see, here's the point of verse 16. We've been spending some chapters on the the details of the church, the organization, the leadership, some of this nitty-gritty stuff. And in verse 16, it's time to say, that's not enough unless we step back and we put our eyes again on Christ. Unless we think again, why does this all matter? It matters because of who Christ is, what he has done, that he has actually accomplished real work in the world for us and continues to do so today. See, it's possible to talk all day about the church and and to miss talking about Jesus. And, And then your church falls apart. But if we put our eyes first on Jesus, focusing on him, then these details about the church begin to fall into place. Christ alone is the reason the church matters. He is the groom of the bride. He is the foundation of the building. He is the head of the body, which is the church. I found this week a a letter from Ted Kluck, who's a a sports writer in Michigan. It was a letter he had written to his five-year-old son about participation in the church. He says, I I want to quote selectively from it. He says, Dear Tristan, by the time you read this, it might be hip to like the church again. Right now it's not. But luckily for us, you're only five, and church is just another place with good toys, friends, and lots of space to run. There may very well be times in your life when uh, you wonder why we're making you go to church. There may very well be a long period in your life 
when you have an indifferent or even a hostile relationship with the church. And then he, he goes on for a while to talk about both the beauty and the blemishes of the church, but this is how he closes. He says, The church is not a magic pill you take that punches your ticket for heaven, nor is it a glorified country club you attend to be around people who talk or think or look or act or vote just like you do. It's a place to go each week to hear the word of God spoken, taught, affirmed. It's a place to sing praises to our God, even if the songs do feel a bit awkward. It's a place to serve and to be challenged. But most of all, I hope you'll always know that the Christian life is not about what you do for God, but, what about, but about what God did for you at the cross. If that message is not central in your church, you may need to find a new one. That's how he closes his letter to his future son, and I hope that will always be true of New Life Burbank. That the central message here, as much as we talk about serving the Lord in our church, which is good, that the central message will not be about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us in Christ. What he did for us at the cross, where all our sins are forgiven, where we, with all our flaws, all our blemishes, all of our humanity, are nevertheless welcomed into his house to sit at his table, his sons and his daughters, to know the presence of the living God among us. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks and praise today for this church that we know, with all its blemishes and flaws, is nevertheless the church of the living God. We are your people, called by your Spirit, redeemed by your Son, atoned for by his blood, poured out on the cross. And so, Father, we come not to give or to serve, but to receive, to receive more grace, to receive more mercy, to be built up by your word, to know the goodness of your presence among your people. Lord, will you feed our hungry hearts? Will you nourish us with your grace? Will you continue the work that you have begun among us of refining us, sanctifying us, purifying us, purifying the gold that we may stand in your presence on that great day? It's in the name of Jesus we ask. Amen. <laughs>